0: There are eight different types of meditation promoted in Eastern religions, Mid-Eastern religions, and New Age spirituality. Are they right or wrong in their approach? How does it compare to the Bible? Find out on this episode of Revealing the True Light.
1: There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light.
0: Almost all religions promote some kind of meditation. Are they all acceptable? Do they work? How do they compare to the biblical view of what meditation is? We're going to find out that vital information on this episode of Revealing the True Light. If meditation techniques are mechanical, mindless, monotonous, monotone, mundane, Magical or overly mystical, most likely they're not correct because that kind of approach treats ultimate reality or treats God as if it's a power to be manipulated, a power to be controlled or channeled through the right kind of incantation or the right kind of mental activity. While biblical meditation is relational. It's simply the overflow of a sincere and loving walk with God. Communion between the everlasting Father and his sons and daughters. It's a heart-to-heart connection with the creator that fosters inspiration from him and internal guidance where you just have a sense, an understanding concerning so many things your purpose in life, the proper understanding of the mysteries of life. It's an outgrowth of a relationship with your Heavenly Father, and that's the biggest difference between the methods found in Buddhism, Hinduism, even Islam or certain offshoots of Islam, New Age spirituality, and those who are followers of Jesus. Again, I want to emphasize that quite often, meditation methods are based on a false interpretation or a wrong interpretation of the nature of God. For instance, in Hinduism or primary sects of Hinduism, ultimate reality is envisioned to be Brahman, which is an impersonal life force or a level of consciousness that permeates the universe. And so, Brahman doesn't respond to you in prayer. It's not a relational thing. It's the life force that is already innately within every human being. So meditation is all about tapping into a force, controlling and channeling that force, but it's not relational. It's not a loving connection, which is exactly what meditation should be. Buddhism, of course, is based on a non-theistic view. Of reality, uh, because Buddhists at the base of that religion do not believe in a creator God. And so meditation doesn't mean a development of a relationship with something they don't even believe exists. It's altogether a different approach. And so it's uh, it's a challenging thing for people of those mindsets to achieve the place they're trying to achieve through meditation because it's self-effort. It's self-effort towards some kind of goal of enlightenment or higher consciousness. When meditation's goal in Christianity is not trying to achieve enlightenment or achieve higher consciousness— Because the moment you're born again, you become consciously aware of a relationship with God. It's an enhancement of that relationship. So it's not a striving and a struggling. It's a celebration of something that's already been established in your heart. And if you don't embrace Christianity yet, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I pray you'll follow along with me in this teaching and make the decision toward the end of the teaching that you want to know Jesus, because then your meditation will be a completely different approach. See, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus made an audacious statement. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And so all of these other methods are not just spurious attempts at penetrating the supernatural world, They're vain attempts of connecting with the creator. And maybe they have some positive outcomes, like greater peace of mind, because if you sit motionless and mindless for an hour, it's going to calm the storm of thoughts. Uh, These uh, some... Far Eastern religion is called the monkey chatter in your mind. It it calms this constant barrage of thoughts, negative and positive, that go on in our minds. Well, yeah, if you sit motionless and mindless for an hour, you're going to come out of that feeling a semblance of peace. But I guarantee you, it is not. It is not the peace that passes understanding that Jesus gives. He's called the Prince of Peace and in the Hebrew, that's sar shalom. The one who rules over your heart gives you his peace, which is peace that passes understanding. It's wonderful. Now, on this podcast, we're also going to start out with the foundation of uh, something that most meditators believe is very important, in Eastern religions and New Age spirituality especially, and that's the position of the body. Most of uh, those who are involved in meditation in that category think that the lotus position is one of the most preferred positions of the body for meditation, and that's sitting with the back erect and the hands resting on the thighs and the legs crossed, and usually the hands, if it's Hindu-based or New Age-based, are in the position of what is called a mudra. A mudra is a position of the hand that has spiritual implications or spiritual connotations. It's symbolic and it's prayerful. It's a meditative pose that's supposed to accomplish a supernatural goal. And most people don't know when you go to a yoga class and they're telling you to sit erect in the lotus position, what it means. Why do they even call it the lotus position? Because the lotus is a flower that floats on the surface of a shallow body of water. And the root system is down in the mud. And so the stem grows up from the mud and opens up under the sun. It escapes the bondage of being under the water. And that represents symbolically the idea of the whole human race being in the muddy waters of carnal consciousness, what the Bible would call carnal consciousness, which would be the lower nature, a bondage to the five senses, what you see, what you hear, what you taste, touch, and and uh, what you smell and and being driven toward the gratification of sensual desires. Well, someone who meditates like the lotus is supposed to climb up above that and get out where the light is, achieving enlightenment. That's the reason it's referred to that way. But what does this mudra mean? The forefinger represents the individual soul, which is called Atman in Hinduism, A-T-M-A-N. The thumb represents Brahman, which is supposedly ultimate reality in Hinduism. When you circle the forefinger around and touch the thumb and hold your hand like this, it's supposed to cause energy to circulate in your body better that enhances your ability to meditate. That's way too mechanical. God doesn't need assistance with mechanical things like that. But it also is a, I would say, a prayerful kind of positioning of the hands, because it's a meditator's way of saying, I want my individual Atman to become one with Brahman. And it's an invocation for the manifestation of Brahman in a person's life, which is a false god. Uh, I believe in the Bible interpretation of God, and God is comprised of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, and he is a personal God, not an impersonal force. And then uh, in Zen Buddhism, you have another mudra that is often used, and that is the cosmic hand mudra, a position somewhat like this where, uh, and for you that are listening to this on an audio podcast, it one hand holds up the other hand. The dominant hand is supposed to cradle the non-dominant hand, and then the thumbs are connected at the top. And it forms an oval, and that oval is supposed to represent the completeness of the universe, but the emptiness of the universe also. Because in Buddhism, one of the primary teachings is, in English, emptiness or that everything is empty of lasting value and has no lasting existence. And part of achieving a nirvana state is a recognition that everything is temporary. Nothing is permanent, which of course is contrary to biblical teaching. Are these kind of bodily positions necessary? Is it necessary to hold your body in a certain position to more successfully reach God. I must say that in the Bible, we are encouraged to lift our hands to God in worship. We are encouraged to kneel before God, our maker. We're encouraged to bow before him, to stand in his presence and we're even encouraged at times to fall prostrate before God. But none of these things are given a magical kind of power that automatically unlocks a response from the spiritual world. It has to be an outgrowth of the heart, spontaneous, and something that is expressive in worshipfulness, not mechanical in its approach to prayer. In fact, if, if you look at the Bible, many of the Bible characters that had visitations of God were not doing anything especially mystical to cause it to happen. When God visited Abraham, he was just sitting at the door of his tent. When God visited uh, Moses in the burning bush experience, he was just walking on a mountain path. When God visited the children of Israel and audibly spoke the Ten Commandments to the whole nation. They were just standing at the base of the mountain. When Paul, at that time he was named Saul, was on his way to Damascus to kill Christians, he was probably riding a horse down the road, and Jesus appeared to him. He wasn't doing anything that was geared toward a mystical experience with the Messiah. Quite the opposite. He was on his way to to persecute those who believed in the Messiah and haul them off to jail and possibly even stone them. And then Jesus reversed the course of his life radically. Or what about the disciples in the upper room? Over a hundred of them were seated in the upper room just sitting there. They weren't in some kind of contorted yogic position that attracted power magically. They were just sitting in the upper room, and there came a sound from heaven as a Russian mighty went and all the house where they were sitting, and cloven tongues like as a fire sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and came into this incredibly powerful relationship with the true and the living God. The psalmist David gave us a scripture where he even talked about inclining in rest at night, being a meditative moment for him. He said in Psalm 63, verse 6, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. So he's talking about laying there in bed, thinking about God. That's a perfectly normal way to approach meditation you wouldn't try to communicate with coworkers by assuming some contorted form of the body and using some mystical approach. They'd think you're nutty. They'd think you've lost your mind if you use some kind of mantra uh, over and over again to try and gain their attention. Of course not. You have a personal relationship with fellow human beings, and it normally involves a flow of conversation. Think of that. I think it's interesting to notice that the first time, I believe it's the first time that meditation is mentioned in the Bible, is Genesis 24, verse 63. And it says that Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and the camels were coming, and that's when he met Rebekah, his wife. Okay, Well, it just says he went out into the field. He's walking in the field, meditating, thinking about God, thinking about life, thinking about his purpose, thinking about the wisdom he's received from his father and the concept of God he holds dear. He's just pondering these things as he walks in the field. No wonder the Bible talked about Noah walked with God, or Enoch walked with God, or Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. No secret arcane methods were ever communicated or passed down through oral tradition that would make meditation more effective. Now, there are some biblical ways to meditate, and in the next Uh, episode of Revealing the True Light, I'm going to focus just on biblical methods of meditation, true biblical methods of meditation. I'm going to touch on the eight methods found in Hinduism and Buddhism and Shamanism and even Sufism, which is an offshoot of Islam. But there's no way I'm going to have time to go into the depth of explanation. In fact, I would encourage you to go to an article on thetruelight.net called Meditation Investigation. The link to that article will be on YouTube and also on CPN shows uh, with the information beneath the, the program description so that you can dig deeper into this. But I'm going to cover, I'm going to do an overview right now so that you can get a basic idea of the methods of meditation used in non-Christian religions, especially Eastern religions. Number one is breath meditation. Number two is yantra meditation. Number three is chakra meditation. Number four is mantra meditation. Number five is sound meditation. Number six is movement meditation. Number seven is visualization meditation. And number eight is silent meditation. Let me go through those eight again. Uh, from the beginning, uh, because it's very important to see that these are considered necessary to achieve higher states of consciousness. Number one is breath meditation. Number two is yantra—that's Y-A-N-T-R-A meditation. Number three is chakra meditation. Four is mantra meditation. Number five is sound meditation. Number six is movement meditation. Number seven is visualization meditation. And finally, number eight is silent meditation. Now let's touch on these uh, shortly so that you have a little bit more understanding what they are. Breath meditation is referred to as entry-level meditation. Usually in almost all religions that teach the necessity of meditation, breath meditation is is the beginning point. It's the start. Where a person sits motionless, usually, and quite often in the lotus position or something similar, and concentrates on inhaling and exhaling very slowly and dismissing all the quote-unquote monkey chatter, all the thoughts that are vying for our attention in our mind and just calming the mind. It's part of something Buddhists call mindfulness, but it's really mindlessness. And uh, there's also a basic belief in Hinduism that breath is permeated with a divine essence called prana. And that as you breathe deeper and concentrate on your breath, it causes prana, in a sense, to permeate the whole breathing process, and it enhances your mystical awareness of God. But I often tell people you can't breathe your way into a relationship with God because you could still have an unrepentant heart and be full of unbelief. You repent and you believe your way into a relationship with God. But yoga involves something called pranayama, and pranayama is breath meditation. And uh, I tell it to people this way. I use yoga as an acrostic, Y-O-G-A. You only get air. You're only going to get hydrogen, oxygen, and a few other gaseous vapors. You're not going to have any kind of spiritual encounter or spiritual awakening as a result. Now, when I studied Kundalini Yoga back in 1970, I was a student of Yogi Bhajan. I taught yoga at four universities. I also ran a yoga ashram. We did something called the breath of fire, which was very deep, quick inhales and exhales of breath and then holding the breath and really it was just hyperventilation that caused uh, like an electrified state of mind, but it was supposed to make you feel like you were achieving higher states of consciousness and a mental rush that was identified with self-realization, but it didn't work. Now, I had supernatural experiences during meditation times. Uh, I experienced the semblance of being out of my body or being caught up into white light. I have a totally different view of what really happened, though. It was not an experience with the presence of God. Now, I did a a podcast recently on can we breathe in the Holy Spirit? And I covered a lot of territory that I'm not going to take time to cover on this episode. But if you're interested in this whole concept of the breath and what value it has and what value it does not have, then I urge you to go back and listen to that episode or watch it. Uh, Can we breathe in the Holy Spirit? And I even covered some Christian songs that misappropriate the power of the breath. Let's go to yantra meditation. What is that? Yantra meditation is focusing your attention on a geometric design and that's supposed to get your mind singled on one thing, focused on one thing, so that you can rid your mind of all the competing thoughts. Traditional yantras have a central point called a bindu, and that bindu symbolizes the deity that the yantra is dedicated to. It's almost always dedicated to some particular Hindu god or goddess, and it also symbolizes the center point of the universe. And so that kind of gives you an entryway into a mystical experience, supposedly. Often yantras and mantras are mixed, so that someone staring at a yantra is simultaneously chanting a mantra, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Chakra meditation comes next. Now, in Hinduism and New Age spirituality and some uh, sects of Christian yoga, and I say that with quotation marks on either side because I don't believe there's such a thing as Christian yoga. Uh, uh, Yoga is inseparably involved in a Hindu mindset, it's inextricable from Hinduism. In fact, some Hindu leaders say there's no yoga without Hinduism and no Hinduism without yoga. But in that worldview, there's a very pronounced belief that within every human being, there are seven chakras, which are whirling energy centers from the base of the spine all the way up to the crown. The one most people are familiar with is called the third eye. And supposedly by meditating on those chakras, you enhance certain characteristics in your life, you connect with certain deities through that, you can have out-of-body experiences. Meditating on the chakras also supposedly aligns them, uh, and it's taught that they can be blocked or out of balance or even whirling around backwards, and you have to turn them around the right way, but it's all imaginary. Uh, in fact, the guru I studied under taught that chakras did not even exist and that they were just an aid in meditation. But if you believe in the chakras, you also necessarily have to believe in the kundalini, which is the dormant power, and kundalini means serpent power, at the base of the spine that is unleashed in meditation, that supposedly brings a person to God consciousness, but is called The serpent power, and a serpent is symbolic of something evil. In New Age spirituality, it represents uh, something enlightening, uh, that the serpent was the one who enlightened Eve concerning her godhood, uh, which is a reversal, a twist on the biblical story in Genesis. Next is mantra meditation. And that's the repeating of certain mantras over and over again, thousands of times, millions of times, sometimes over the span of a lifetime, in order to awaken this God nature, this oneness with God, which is envisioned to be in some belief systems. Most Hindus believe that to be one with God is to have a conscious realization that you are God which is the absolute opposite of the truth. But anyway, mantras are supposed to aid in that. The mantra I chanted when I was a yoga student over 50 years ago was Ekonkar nam suri wa guru, and it meant there is one God, truth is his name, and the spirit is our teacher, which within a biblical framework really has truth attached to it, but when it's interpreted from a Hindu foundation, it becomes something deceptive altogether. And there's different things that people meditate, like the word "om, stretched out into three sounds, it actually is representative of the three gods at the head of the Hindu pantheon: Brahman, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. And so when you chant Om, you're supposed to be coming into the vibration of the original manifestation of the universe and the three gods at the head of the Hindu pantheon, uh, none of which is true. And then uh, Krishna devotees, for instance, chant the Hare Krishna mantra all day long. They're supposed to do it 118 times, 16 times a day. That's 1,728 times in a day in order to connect with this deity called Krishna. Uh, do you really believe that a god would appreciate just hearing the rattling sound of a something like that over and over again in order to achieve communion? You don't talk to a fellow human being that way. That would be absurd. But uh, some Christians do things that are just as, uh, in my book, in my understanding, just as futile, like the Jesus prayer that some monks and some um, contemplatives use, where over and over again, hundreds of times a day, they'll say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, as if they can manipulate the Lord into making that happen if they repeat it hundreds of times. It's not necessary, If you want to see how Jesus prayed, you know, there's a saying, what would Jesus do? If you want to see how Jesus prayed, go to John chapter 17. It's a flow of thought from the beginning to the end, not one of which is repeated in a mechanical way. He talked to the father that way and showed us how to talk to the father that way. Next is movement meditation. And and by the way, Jesus in Matthew 6, 7 said, use not vain repetitions like the heathen do. He spoke against mantra meditation. Okay, the next one is, is movement meditation. And the chief example of that I can find is in Sufism, where the Sufis uh, dance in this whirling kind of dance, whirling dervishes, they are called, where they believe as they dance in this whirling way, they come into these mystical experiences with the beloved. Then you have visualization meditation, which means holding certain images in your mind, which is really witchcraft. Because if you try and manipulate or control what manifests in your life or what you want to see happen in your future by holding that image in your mind, you're trying to control some force. You're not appealing to a personal God who loves you and wants to do things in your life. If you're yielded to him, that are beneficial to you. That's visualization meditation. Then you have sound meditation, which I'm very familiar with. The guru I studied under had a huge gong and a big mallet, and we would lay flat on our back, and he'd hit that gong for about a half an hour, and it was supposed to vibrate through your whole being until it helped you enter into universal consciousness. You don't gong your way into a relationship with God. And I have a friend, in fact, his testimony is on the website, Taylor Taylor Houchins, um, who was a shaman before salvation. And he used to beat a drum until it would throw him into a trance-like hypnotic state. And shamans do that. But again, that doesn't give you a genuine, authentic experience of God. Then finally, you have silent meditation, And uh, that happens a lot in Buddhism. Buddhists will meditate right on a red dot or on the flame of a fire for hours at a time, completely silent, trying to achieve nirvana. I have much more to say about that, but some people justify that method of meditation by quoting Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Some who actually believe in God justify silent meditation that way, including Thomas Merton, a Catholic monk who blended Buddhism and Christianity, which I believe is uh, impossible to do. But anyway, they quote that as if that's an exhortation to silent meditation. But you're pulling it out of context, because if you go read Psalm 46, it's not about meditation. It's not about prayer it says, come behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he's made in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In other words, God is saying, be awestruck that I'm going to change this world in such a way that war will never happen again that's going to be a wonderful day. And that's what he was talking about. So again, I've covered this simplistically. And if you want to go into greater depth, go to thetruelight.net, go to writings, and go to the article called Meditation Investigation. And that will help you see this in much greater detail.